Our scripture lesson this morning is from the Old Testament, from 2 Kings chapter 5. Just a word about the Old Testament. I know that for me, the Old Testament uh, can be a little daunting, right, at times. And sometimes I remember someone saying to me, I, I don't get much out of the Old Testament. And I was shocked by that because as I began to dive more and more into these uh, stories of the Old Testament, what we learn is that they're stories of the human and God interaction, the interplay between humanity and God, and how God is revealed more in these texts. You heard a little bit of it from Pastor Mike during the children's time. You got a preview. I'm now going to give you this whole text from chapter 5, again, verses 1 through 14. So listen for the word of God for us this day. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only, my Lord were a pro- if only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go. Wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, Wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word for us, a word that comes to us through scripture, 
and a word that comes to us in this time through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Churches today will do a lot of things to try and attract people to fill their pews. And some of these things are pure gimmicks. Like a church I read about in Texas that gives away $10,000 every Sunday in door prizes. These churches are using carrots. Carrots to draw people in, taking an approach that essentially says, we'll do anything to get some bodies in the door. But some churches are also doing this in a way that tries to meet people's needs, right? They're, they'll approach evangelism, approach the sharing of God's good news as an opportunity to provide for the needs of people, the people they know and the people they don't yet know, people they've never met. And so conversations in these churches are often geared toward the question, what can we offer? What can we offer to parents of young children? What can we offer to senior citizens? What can we offer to single adults? What can we offer to youth, to children? How are we relevant, they might ask. How are we relevant? How are we re relevant in the midst of the distractions and attractions of life? How is the church relevant in a time when it is no longer the expectation or the assumption that everyone will be in church on Sunday morning. We all know that was the assumption for such a long period of time. Now, ever since 2020, this question has changed a little bit, right? It's been born out of fear in some ways, but it's this question, how will we get people back? How do we get people back? But it often then slips to that secondary question again. The, the question that, that sometimes around the table can become, how can, we make the, how can we make the church, or even how can we make God relevant? Yes, churches often talk of making God and the church relevant to people. Now, these questions sound very similar to marketing conversations, marketing conversations that happen in a wide variety of settings, especially in the corporate world where people are trying to sell something, a product or, um, or a service. And I have to confess that my idealism sometimes leads me in life to be a little bit naive. The idealist in me wants to reject these questions outright and hold firm to my position that I long held that as a church, we're not selling anything. And as humans, as mere people, we have nothing to add to God. God is complete already. And so we can't therefore make God more relevant if God already is the most relevant of all relevances. God is the one who is already relevant for people today, yesterday, throughout history, and it will always be the case for all time to come. God is relevant. And our job is to stay out of the way, to do the work of removing the distractions from God, removing the distractions so that, so that others can encounter God without us getting in the way. So you see, unlike traditional approaches to sales in the corporate or even, even within the nonprofit world, 
My idealistic view of the church has been that the church should avoid at all costs the temptation to make God a product. And perhaps the reason for my offense is more of a rejection of the free money churches or the purely consumer-driven entertainment churches that present a gospel of the Burger King variety, you know, where you can have it your way. But we follow the King of Kings, not the Burger King. And a way to look at this then might be a continuum. A continuum with one end being my idealistic approach to church where we're not selling anything, and on the other end, the snake oil, carnival hawker, lottery-style, auditorium-filling approach that will do anything to get you in the door. Like all continuums or ranges, there's something actually to be gained from looking at both angles and all of the in-betweens. Our text this morning from 2 Kings, shows a little bit of the value of another way, though, of looking at this. A way that lies between my idealistic view and the free money perspective. You've heard this text read, and you heard Michael share briefly, but I want to go over this again a little bit. Because Naaman is a commander in the army of of the king of Aram. Aram and Israel our enemies on and off again, mainly on. The kingdom of Israel at this time has been divided for more than 200 years. It's hard for us to grasp sometimes the the volume of uh, changes and swings in power during this time. And there's this near constant struggle during this time to figure out who's in control, who's in power at what time. And so this tension is so thick that, that wars were often started over very, very simple things, trivial things. And so Naaman is over in Aram, and he's sick. He has a need. He wants to be healed of his affliction. And this young girl, who's a slave from Israel, so from the enemy, hears of this condition. She learns of his situation and his struggle. She she learns of it, and she shares with her mistress about the prophet of God named Elisha. Most of us are familiar with the prophet Elijah, right? With a J, Elijah. But not as much with Elisha. Elisha was the successor prophet of Elijah. In fact, in this section of 2 Kings, right before this is when Elijah has has left. And Elijah, Elijah has said to Elisha that Elisha will be the next prophet. And Elisha is a different kind of prophet. He's a healer and a worker of miracles. In fact, other than Jesus, there are more of Elisha's miracles described in Scripture than miracles attributed to anyone else. So in these acts of miracles, Elisha has been actively pointing people toward God, and he's been used by God to share God's message with the people. And so this slave girl knew, knew of Elisha. This slave girl, someone with no power and no station, She shares with her mistress that she knows of a prophet in her homeland who could heal Naaman. For all of the pointing toward God that people have done throughout Scripture, for all of the pointing to God that the prophets have done and kings have done, it's this powerless woman who God uses to get Naaman's attention. 
And she gets his attention by telling what this prophet can do. Naaman's king sends Naaman to Israel to go see the king of Israel. And I love this part of the the text because it's subtle. But Naaman goes to this king of Israel with this letter and the king of Israel thinks it's a trap, right? He thinks it's a trap that, that he's being sent by this enemy king to heal, knowing that he's not going to be able to heal, and that that his failure to heal Naaman is going to lead to war. And the king of Israel's fears are real. They're founded. He's worried about his people. He's worried about maintaining the fragile peace that he knows could fall apart in an instant. He has no faith in the possibility of transformation because, for Naaman, because Naaman's needs are beyond what the king understands that he can do. When the rubber hits the road, many Christians are like this king. We want to be a part of the story of God. But when it gets a little uncomfortable, we panic. We want to keep the status quo, protect our basket of eggs, stay where we are, protect the things as we know them. We want to send Naaman away. Too much risk. Elijah hears, Elisha hears of the interaction between the king and Naaman. And he comes to the king of Israel and he essentially says to him, why did you send him away? Have you no faith in God? Let me talk to him. And so Elisha and Naaman meet. And Elisha tells Naaman to do a strange thing. He says, go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. This isn't at all what Naaman was looking for. It's not the answer he wanted. He didn't travel all this way to be told to do this. Naaman wanted to be healed. He wanted to be healed in a miraculous instant. He wanted to witness the healing power of this prophet, and he had an expectation of what that would look like. But in reality, what he wanted, what he needed, was to be healed. And Elisha knew this. Elisha had listened to what Naaman really wanted and needed, and he showed him a path to healing. But Naaman was quick to reject it because it didn't fit his expectation. But then it was Naaman's servants, again, the ones with the least power and the lowest position. They're the ones who say to him, come on, try it. If he had asked you to do something hard, some feat, some struggle, some challenge, if he had asked you to do it, you would have done it without question. But when he says to do something simple, you reject him. How often in our own lives do we become so overwhelmed by our circumstances that we have, a tr- we have trouble seeing the way out? We spend significant time and effort trying to find solutions to these things that challenge us. And it's as though... Like with Naaman, if it isn't a lot of work, then it's probably not the right solution. Or we come up with our solution. I have a plan. I have a way out of this. We come up with that solution 
without considering that there might be an easier path or a path that someone else can see more clearly than we can see. And we, we run the risk of failing to find healing in our lives because we're looking for it in the wrong places and the wrong ways. But for Naaman, his own inability to see the path isn't the end of the story. It's the ones that Naaman surrounds himself with that encourage him. They are the ones closest to Naaman and the ones who know him well. And Naaman is persuaded by them and by their encouragement. And so Naaman does what Elisha says, and he dips seven times in the Jordan. And I wonder what was going through his mind each of those seven times. But it doesn't matter, does it? Because he was healed. Friends, this entire text is a story of people pointing other people toward God. People pointing other people toward God. That's what happens when word gets to Naaman that an Israelite servant has spoken of a prophet of God who can heal. That's what happens when the king is afraid God won't heal Naaman and Elisha asks him where his faith is. That's what happens when Elisha talks to Naaman and tells him to go to the river. That's what happens when Naaman's servants challenge him to just try it. You see, friends, we need others to point us toward God. We need others to help us see that it is God and God alone who can provide us with what we need. Even in the midst of our works, our efforts to meet the needs of others, it isn't our actions that are meeting their needs. It is God. And it is our actions that must be helping to point people toward God and God's love, or they are empty actions. They're empty. Naaman decides, after having been healed, that he will worship God alone. You see, this is where my idealism, my idealism of saying that God alone should draw people to church and into relationship with God, this is where my idealism runs into a problem. It's a problem because God involves us in God's redemptive story. God involves you in God's redemptive story. God involves the church in God's redemptive story. We are a part of the story just as God involved the servant girl, just as God involved Elisha, just as God involved Naaman's soldiers. God involves us in the story of showing God's goodness to others so that they might be drawn themselves toward God. Not toward us but toward God. God involves us in God's redemptive story so that we can bring the good news of Jesus Christ through our actions and through our relationships by telling our own story of God's work in our lives so that others too can be drawn to God. This is our calling as a church. This is our calling as a people who gather in the name of Christ. Our calling over and over again will be to love our neighbor, 
love all whom we encounter. And even as we try to anticipate and meet the needs of others, we do this pointing to God so that others might see the goodness of our God. And with that come the people. Because others want to be a part of that story. And you see, this is what happens with Naaman. Naaman goes on to tell the story of God's goodness to others, even as he returns to his homeland. That's precisely what evangelism is. Sharing the good news. Sharing and showing the goodness of God. That's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's what we do in the waters of baptism. It's what we do when we gather for fellowship, when we sing with the choir, when we teach Sunday school, when we usher, when we serve on a committee. That's what we do. Sharing and showing the goodness of God. That's who we are. That's what a church is meant to be. It's what we do when we learn more about the God we serve. It's it's why we read scripture. It's why we pray. It's why we gather. It's why we come together. It's why we serve the least and the lost. You see, because having experienced God's redemptive work in our lives, just like Naaman, we do what must come next. We share. And we show God's goodness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.